0: The pastor at Rocky Mount Bible Church, and we've had the pleasure over the last few years of not only gathering here together and opening God's Word, but also getting to know you a little bit, and that's an extraordinary joy for us as a church and also as an evangelical community here in the Rocky Mount area. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Now, as I understand, Jim Upchurch who is the pastor of Christ Church in Rollsville, has uh, by accident locked his keys in his car with his Bible in his notes. So Justin has given me permission to preach until 8 o'clock tonight. If I understand right, we should be able to make it through the first seven verses of John 14. Kidding. My congregation knows that's not much of a stretch, but John 14. Let me read it first. Starting in verse 1. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us not only to understand it, but also to apply its lessons and its commendations to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, uh, it was a tough week for fans of the Tar Heels. The University of North Carolina just over a week ago, poor guys, lost in the NCAA tournament, and then this morning... To compound one tragedy upon another, Roy Williams, beloved national title winning coach passed away, tragic, tragic accident, was met at the pearly gates by St. Peter, where Peter greets Roy Williams, legendary basketball coach, and says, Roy, you're such a good guy. It's nice to see you. I'm so glad that you're here. You've done so many wonderful things. Far, far more good than bad, and now you've finally arrived here at your eternal home. Let me show you around. And Roy is excited as they make their way past the giant pearly gates into the city of God. There on the left and on the right are innumerable mansions, more glorious than anything he's ever seen. But he's startled. At, their, at the end of the cul-de-sac of the places made by God for those who have done pretty good things is the Dean Dome, the place where UNC plays all of their basketball games. And He goes, I'm a little confused. I, I just left Chapel Hill. How in the world am I looking at the Dean Dome? And Peter says, oh man, I got to tell you, the Lord was so impressed by the way that you lived your life, he wanted to give you a special treat. Here he has made your mansion here in the eternal place, in the shape and in the form of a building that has meant so much to you, where you poured in all of your blood and sweat and tears, so much time, so much love, so much history that you've invested in there. And now this is what your mansion will look like for eternity. And Roy is overwhelmed by this, and so he makes his way in, and it's unimaginable. Absolutely beautiful. The perfect gift that God could have given him. And then just out of the corner of his eye, he sees Cameron Indoor Stadium. And he says, oh, no. Oh, Peter, tell me it's not so. Tell me that Coach K didn't die, too. My good friend, another good guy, please tell me. He's okay. Oh, that's okay. He didn't die. That's where God lives. All right. See, that joke would have been funnier if Duke had kept their end of the bargain and won the game last night, right? Now I've made the Carolina fans mad. And the state fans were already mad because the joke is just like the tournament. They were sad that they got left out. And I would explain it to the East Carolina fans, but we'd have to talk slower. It's a whole... All right, John chapter 14. Here's what I love about John 14. John 14 obliterates the two great lies from that very bad joke. The joke says that heaven and its mansions are the goal and that being good will get you there. John 14 says that Jesus is the goal and that Jesus will get you there. If I have a a way to summarize what it is that we're going to examine in the first seven verses of John 14, it's two points. These are the two points that I would offer you. The first from the first few verses is this, because I know where I'm going, I will trust in him. Because I know where I am going, I will trust in him. The second point is similar, because I know the way, I will tell others. Because I know the way, I will tell others. Those are our two points tonight. If you look at the first couple of verses here of John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's helpful that the disciples didn't immediately know what was going on. Of course, if you're looking at the broader context, and we saw a whole lot of John chapter 13 explained last night, but there's a little hinge passage here. Jesus has spent an extraordinary amount of time in the last couple of minutes explaining that someone would betray him, but we also find this starting in verse 36 of John chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I tell you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The disciples are confused. Spurgeon notes helpfully that it's a good thing that the disciples are occasionally confused, or else we wouldn't get from the Savior all of these great explanations of things that are happening for us. They are tired, they're afraid. There are any number of things that will compound the guilt they already feel about the Savior who is about to leave them. And so set within the context of Peter's imminent denials and Jesus' imminent death, Jesus encourages and comforts his disciples with the promise of his presence. Take again a look at verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If you're one of those heathens who writes in your Bibles, uh, this would be a great place to write in your Bible. I don't know that there is a more precious promise in the entirety of the New Testament canon than what we find in the phrase, I will come again and take you to myself. This is a passage I have preached, I think, at every funeral I have ever preached reminding the family of the ultimate destination of every believer that I've had the opportunity to see pass from this earth. There are certain passages, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind, gets absolutely worn out at weddings. And if you've spent any amount of time reading 1 Corinthians 13, you know that that is not a passage that's only good for weddings. It's good for the life of the body of Christ. And so it is with John chapter 14. Not that it's being over-applied to funerals. It's a great funeral passage. But that it's being under-applied to people who are in despairing times, just like Peter and the other disciples were here in John 14, on the night before Jesus would be betrayed. I wonder if I've missed a huge opportunity to comfort those under great duress with a word about what comes next. If this is your low this passage is for you. If this is a hard day, this passage is for you. If darkness is clouding the periphery of your life, this passage is for you. If yesterday was deflating and the very prospect of tomorrow seems daunting, John 14 is uniquely helpful for you. Because I am going to him, I can train my heart and Treat my wounded soul with the gift of trust. Because I know where I am going, I will trust in him. Now, uh, the disciples ask a very good question here. Where are you going? And maybe the question that is the subtext beneath that one is, why are you leaving us at all? Do they really understand the work that Jesus is about to do at Calvary here just hours away? Do they understand that he will rise again in three days and then he will spend some time teaching them before he ascends? Do they understand all that's about to play out? Well, no, maybe they understand parts of that. Jesus will bring them along. He's a careful teacher. He cares about them. But I wonder, if I were in their place, if I wouldn't feel the same tension and the same nervousness and the same fear about the fact that he's about to leave them. Now, Calvin, in his commentary on John, notes here helpfully, thoroughly, Christ did not ascend to heaven privately for himself to live there alone, but rather that it might be the common inheritance of all godly people. And in this way, the head might be united to the members. Why can't I see him? This isn't fair. This isn't right. Last summer, I had uh, just an extraordinarily difficult summer. Uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, just a very difficult summer. My anxiety was through the roof, and it was hard to manage day to day. And there was a moment in the middle of that summer, I'm outside our little church, and I've got a little rubber ball, and I'm throwing it against the bricks, and I'm praying while I'm doing that, where I literally became angry that God seemed so far away. Why could I not experience as Peter did, and James and John and the other disciples, Jesus being with me in his physical presence now. It doesn't seem right. Where is my Lord and King? Does he not know my despair? Does he not know my tragedies? Doesn't he know where I am? And the answer that emerges out of these verses is of course. Of course he knows where you are. Of course he knows what you're going through. But it's necessary that he be apart from his people today. To prepare a place for them for eternity. And because I know that when he says he is leaving. That he is also coming back for me. I know that I can trust in him and survive these days in the duration of his physical absence. Now, maybe the most important point to be made in all of this here at the very beginning is this. To clarify, in case maybe it's been confusing so far, Jesus isn't only the way. Jesus is the destination. Jesus isn't only the path that leads us toward more wonderful things, Jesus is the more wonderful thing. Jesus is the goal. He's the end. He's the telos. He's the final figure in the history of every believer. Jesus is not only the way to the house of the Father. Jesus is the Father's house. Just for a moment, turn back to John chapter 2. I want you to see this. In John chapter 2, and this is a scene that I know that you're familiar with, Starting in verse 13, I want you to see what Jesus says here about the Father's house and his relationship to the Father's house. Now, the Passover at the Jews, John chapter 2, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins out of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make, what? My father's house, a house of trade. Now his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Where do you get the authority to come in here and lay waste to this place? Jesus answers in verse 19, he answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, "Um, sir, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to finish the project in three days from scratch? And then John notes here. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, turn back to John 14. In my Father's house, he says there, in the beginning of verse 2, are many rooms. What is Jesus talking about? Now, most interpreters have understood the reference to my Father's house as a reference to heaven, And all of the dwelling places there were we're never given the the word mansion. Mansion is kind of a bad interpretation of the places or rooms within the Father's house. And the dwelling places are the the permanent residences of all the believers there. However, the phrase, in my Father's house, is used in chapter 2, we saw, to refer to the temple in Jerusalem. And then Jesus takes it a step further in verse 19 and reinterprets the temple as his own body which was destroyed in death and then rebuilt in resurrection three days later. The imagery of the fourth gospel in the phrase, in my father's house, is ultimately a reference to Jesus' body. The dwelling place is in Jesus himself. My father's house is where he is, whether in heaven or on earth. When we long for what is in heaven, we long for Jesus. We long for lots of things. There will be in that place peace unimaginable and the absence of pain and death and the camaraderie of saints. But there is nothing that compares in all of those things to being in the presence of King Jesus. So if we're talking about Jesus as John 2 does about where we meet God, we're talking about him and Jesus as the Father's house. And if we're talking about where our hope lies... To sustain us in this weary world like John 14 does, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the end. Jesus is not only the way to heaven, Jesus is the goal of heaven. When we long for the peace that passes the understanding of this age, we pray for the presence of Christ. When we yearn for the halls of heaven, its painlessness and its glory, we're really praying for the presence of Christ. And when we plead that our hopes might be fulfilled, what we're really saying is, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Christ is the end. Christ is the goal. The presence of our God and King is the highest gift that heaven affords. And every mature believer knows that he reigns above all As the gift giver, all of the other gifts of being on the other side of eternity. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, my dad went to Desert Shield and Desert Storm, lifelong Air Force guy. And for the better part of a year and a half, uh, it was just me and my mom. And like a child remembers things, I remember my mom doing all of those things that Pop normally did. Mom mowed the yard and mom put in all of the storm windows and mom helped me with my math homework. And, and there are all sorts of incredible memories that pop into my mind from that time when Pop was gone at war. And I remember vividly the day that he got back. Uh, early 90s, he'd been gone so long. C-130 Hercules landed there on the tarmac. And my mom could not contain herself. And and all of the soldiers came out of the plane, and there uh, is the commanding officer, and he calls them all into a row there, and he dismisses them, and they just go bananas. And and my mom, unable to restrain herself, starts running down the runway and launches herself into his arms. That image is just burned into my memory as a young child. Now, Now, when she took off, when she started running, she was not running to him because she needed him to mow the lawn. She was not running to him because she was so enthusiastic that he was going to take down the storm windows. She was not running to him because she was tired of helping me with my math homework. She was running to him because she wanted him. She wanted to be with him. She wanted to be held by him. All of that other stuff, wonderful, Fine but ultimately meaningless in the presence of the one that she loved. And so it is for the believer. We want him. And because of the promise of verse 3, where I am, you may be also, I can survive today. Because I know where I'm going, I will trust him. Now, secondly, because I know the way... I will tell others. (coughs) Excuse me. Take a look again at verse 2. We're going to make a couple of notes here about what it is that we are heading toward and how we get there. John says clearly here, quoting the Savior In my Father's house are many rooms. There are many rooms. In this statement, we learn something about the wideness, I think, of the mercy of God. There are many, many rooms, many rooms. That there are many rooms, and these are the two words here that you need to keep in mind as we move over the next few minutes. That there are many rooms speaks to God's capability to shelter his people and also his willingness to shelter his people. His capability and his willingness to shelter his people. Capability and willingness. Those are the key words. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the eldest male functioned as the patriarch. He's the leader of the family. The ancient Near Eastern world was patriarchal. It was also patrilocal. His children, and sometimes their children, would live in the house of the father. His estate, his compound. Not more usually than two or three rooms. The Hebrew term here for the father's house was the bayat Of the house of the father, the bayat of it was the physical center of the patriarch's affection and care for his people, his family. And when a young man would be betrothed to his wife, they would get married and they would be invited back to the father's house, to the compound, to the estate, the bayat of the father's place where he cared for his family. Then the young couple would live under his protection and his provision. As the young husband learned to care for his wife and future children and also as he prepared one day to become the patriarch, to serve as the father who ruled the house and provided and cared and protected the people who lived under his roof. And even as more sons were married off and more grandchildren were born and more houses were added to the family compound, the entire estate was still referred to as the bayt of the father's house. Now, the Bayadav is profoundly important in another context, and we say that to say this. When a young woman, much like Ruth, found herself widowed and functionally homeless, without much, without much hope in the world, she appealed to the laws of the Old Testament to find a kinsman redeemer, this is a man in her husband's family line, and he bore the responsibility to marry her, to give her offspring and some hope for a prosperous future. And occasionally, what we found is, as we discovered in Ruth chapter 4, occasionally the next closest member, male member of the family, the one who should have functioned as the kinsman redeemer, declined his responsibility under Old Testament law. Occasionally, the kinsman redeemer proved himself either unwilling or unable to care for yet another person, and for many, it was absolutely devastating news, but here, Here in John 14, Jesus proves that he is both willing and capable to care for his people. To draw them into the buy-it-of, the Father's house. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the kinsman-redeemer who draws the poor, having nothing to offer of their own merits into the riches of God's presence. Many of you, I think, want to know, you look at a passage like this one, and maybe some of you have been believers for years, but maybe others have been a believer a very short amount of time, or maybe even some of you in this room are still contemplating at this moment what it means to repent of your sin and kneel in fealty to King Jesus. And what it means in part is this, for those who would repent and turn to him, there is a room in his father's house for you not only a select few, not only those who prove themselves most worthy, but all of those covered in the blood of the Savior can come in. There are many rooms in the Father's house. Does he know what I've done? All of the ways that I've rebelled against him, all the tragedies I've borne across my life. Doesn't he know my sin and my guilt? Of course he does. And he reckons with all of it at the cross, such that there is room for you. In my Father's house is room for all those who would live in faith toward Christ. But Of course, we ask the question, and you should ask the question, but how could God, who is holy, Make room for me, a sinner, in his righteous estate. How could he let someone as miserable as I am into the buy-it-of, into the Father's house? Well, we find here that for as expansive as the Father's house is, starting in verse 4, there is an important note to be made. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says, and Thomas says, Lord, I don't know where you're going. How in the world could I possibly know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the shepherd of the sheep and of caring for the sheep, he says that there is a pen for them included there, and that he is the gate, the singular entrance into the place of his protection and provision. He is the gate. He is the way in to get to him. He is the means by which we have a relationship with him. He is the gate. There is no other. He is the way and the truth and the life. There is no other option. The gate of John 10 is Jesus who by his death and resurrection, a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, opens the kingdom of God to his people. My sin forgiven, God's wrath assuaged. My death is died and my punishment is reckoned at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand what's happening here theologically because there are very important applications that are emerging out of this passage because there are going to be moments in your life, even in the lives of very mature believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for decades. There are going to be moments when Satan will sit on your shoulder and whisper in your ear, don't you remember what you did? Don't you remember that moment in high school? Yes, yes, I remember, but I remember the cross as well in my father's house or many rooms. Don't you remember the way that you failed him in college? and failed to be who he called you to be? Yes, yes, I remember, but I remember the cross, and I remember that in my Father's house are many rooms. Don't you remember the way that you spoke ill to your spouse, or you were rough with your kids, or you failed at your job, or you did something to prove that you were not living a Christ-like life? Yes, I remember, I remember those things, but I also remember the shepherd who laid down his life for me, his sheep, and because of that, I take secure as the promise, For myself and for all others who would repent. In my Father's house are many, 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 many rooms. Even a room for me. We need that. We need that at the very first day of our salvation and every day that follows thereafter. We hold on to that. Because I know where I am going, I will trust in him. And because I know the way, because I know that he exclusively is the way, then I am compelled by the word and by the spirit to tell others. This is going to change the way that you think about evangelism, wrestling with the fact that the kingdom of God is fantastically inclusive. There are many rooms but simultaneously it is terribly and irrevocably exclusive. There is only one way to get to those many rooms. will change the way you see the dying world around you. Jesus is the way. You and your works and all the good that you have ever done, not the way. Jesus is the truth and the life. Neither Buddha, nor Muhammad, nor Joseph Smith, nor any other figure who has ever lived in history is the truth and the life. Jesus is exclusively the gate. There is no other. And it is infinitely cruel to allow those who live around you, who believe in a plurality of paths to the mountaintop which is God, to go on living under the delusion that there is any other way other than through the Savior who offers himself, his blood and his life for his sheep. Because I know where I'm going, I will trust in him. Because I know the way, I will tell others. There's a song and uh, I am not a great singer. Uh, our congregation pays me to preach and pastor. They do not pay me to sing. And so what we're going to do in just a moment, I'm going to read these words to you of a song that we have sung many times, all of us, I think. And then I'm going to turn off my microphone, and we're going to sing it together. So if you have a hymnal in front of you, I think it's page 60. It's a song that we sang at our wedding. It's called Be Thou My Vision. And we'll sing a cappella. We're going to sing the first and the third stanza, and here's why. It draws back into focus the ultimate goal of us looking toward what happens on the other side of eternity. The first stanza you're familiar with, I'm sure. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and at night, both waking and sleeping, thy presence my light is the third stanza that I love and the one that... We need to remember as we consider the promise of John chapter 14, where I am going, you may be also, I will bring you with me. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Be thou mine inheritance now and always. Not mansions, not gold, not glory, not fame, not you, you, you alone. I regard as the highest of all mine inheritances. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's stand and sing those two stanzas together. Be thou